Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through. Keeping their delicate skin healthy and happy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick and goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable. When my oldest was little, she would get the worst diaper rash. It left me feeling so desperate to help her while also wanting something gentle on her skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor. When she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash, she let nothing get in her way. You can use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel confident that you are making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra-premium formula for moms that won't settle when it comes to their little ones. Soothe and restore with active ingredients being dimethicone and petrolatum. You can find more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com or find it on Amazon or Walmart.com. You are listening to the VBAC Link podcast, episode number 45. Today, we are going to talk to Miranda, who had a VBAC after two C-sections. And guys, I don't know if you know this or not, but VBAC after two C-sections is a pretty safe and reasonable option for most women. In fact, we get asked so much. It's probably one of the most common things we get asked mm -hmm. about on our Facebook and our Instagram pages. Yeah. So after Miranda shares her awesome story, and we just been chit-chatting for a little bit, and I already kind of have a little secret uh, girl crush on her because <laughs> she just sounds so cute and I can't I wait for you guys to hear her story but um but before we get into that and before I gush even more about Miranda Megan has our review of the week so today we have our review of the week from Lisco 08 and she left a review on iTunes she says I am so glad I found this podcast and account I am now a faithful listener, love the Instagram posts, and am now a subscriber to the website as well. This podcast makes me feel so much more confident and excited for my VBAC someday. Yes, the episodes are extremely empowering, but they are also very validating of your feelings after a C-section. Hopes for the future birth and fear surrounding that. I feel this podcast is my safe place. Thank you so much. Love you, ladies. Oh, love you we back. We love you back. <laughs> and as she said, we do. We have the podcast and we have our Instagram. And if you have not yet subscribed to our email subscription, you can go to thevbacklink.com and subscribe there. And you'll be updated every single time a new podcast or a blog or an updated thing that we do. Mm -hmm. our, you know, our classes and everything that we do comes out. And you guys, just a little heads up. We have something fun coming up. So make sure to subscribe because it's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's pretty big and we are really excited. So head over to the vbacklink.com and subscribe. And if you would do us a lovely solid, head over to iTunes or Facebook or wherever you listen and leave us a review. And you just may be the next one, um, next review read on the podcast. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you didn't know this already, before we get into our sweet little intro, we have a community on Facebook just yes, for our listeners. So take a second and go to Facebook, search the VBAC link community and request to join and we'll get you in, in our little secret safe space for you. Yes. All right. And now <laughs> to our intro. <laughs> 
You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Welcome, women of strength. It is Wednesday, my favorite day of the week, and I hope your favorite day of the week, too. And we have got our friend Miranda on here, and we cannot wait to hear her story. She has had to be back after two C-sections, and at the end of this episode, we are going to talk more about that. But before I start chit-chatting all day, like you know I do, (laughs) I'm just going to turn it over to Miranda. (laughs) Okay, so... I suppose, like all good stories, it starts at the beginning. I became pregnant in the summer of 2013, and I live in a really rural area of Missouri. There is not a delivering hospital in my county, so I knew I was going to have to go at least about 30 minutes for um, any type of care, and we opted to go just a little bit further to um, Kansas City into the nearest like metropolitan area. Picked out my practice based on the recommendation of a friend. Super uncomplicated pregnancy. Um, everything went really normal. I read Ina May. You know all of all of the good stuff that you do when you're excited and it's your first baby. And I had this idea of how everything was going to be perfect. I got to. 41 weeks and um, consented to a biophysical profile with my OB, which is fine. Like, let's check everything out. At that point, everything looked great, but she was like, hey, I'm on, I'm on duty tonight. Let's come in for an induction. And we decided, sure, why not? We're excited. Um, you know, there's no reason not to do this at this point. And <laughs> the pretty much started like our cascade of interventions. Um, I went in for Cervidil overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like maybe a one. Baby was still really high, you know, typical first-time mom. Not that I knew that that was typical at that point. But did Pitocin. They broke my water very first thing the next morning when she was on rounds. And I eventually stalled out at four centimeters. And Mm -hmm. I begged for more time. Um, They gave me some more time. Uh, still no change, still four centimeters. Um, I wasn't getting any assistance. I was discouraged from moving or walking because that knocks the monitors off and mm, got a real cranky yes. nurse. And yeah, it just, it wasn't positive. Finally, like the next that the evening of the next day, like after going in the night before, um, it's about eight o'clock, and she was like, "Okay, like we need we need to talk about a C-section at this point." She's like, "We'll talk about what what could happen next, like if you wanted another child later at your follow up, right?" Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> which again, like at around thirty six weeks in that pregnancy, my provider had said, "Well, when do you want to schedule an induction? We can do it just like a haircut." <laughs> and oh my that gosh! Was yeah, she been that. a really big oh. red Again, I was naive. It was my first baby. The practice was otherwise really nice. Everything was really pretty. But so we ended up with the C-section. I knew it wasn't an emergency of any kind because she talked about it 
at around 8 o'clock that evening. And it was after 10 o'clock before we were, mm. it was 10 o'clock when we got to the operating room. Yeah. <laughs> so there wasn't any rush. I was fine through the whole thing. Baby was fine. But, you know, it was okay. Um, it wasn't what I dreamed about, but we were both healthy and it was okay. At that point, I had a friend from college who was studying to be a midwife. And she had seen that uh, my husband and I had welcomed a daughter and said, oh, congratulations. How did everything go? Because, of course, she's really curious about birth at this point because she's in midwifery classes. And I mentioned, oh, like, totally not what I wanted. (laughs) Nothing went the way that I thought it was going to go. And she mentioned ICANN to me, um, the International Cesarean Awareness Network, and suggested that I seek out a local chapter. And so I did. And I found one in the Kansas City area and joined way before we even thought about having a second baby. And it was so reassuring to, you know, just kind of throw up my thoughts into a Facebook group and find all of these other women who felt exactly the same way that I did. And um, it was just really validating to know that it was okay to be emotionally like disappointed in the outcome Mm -hmm. you know that that the way the birth happens matters you know a healthy baby and a healthy mother are fantastic but the way that birth happens matters and when I found myself pregnant the next spring I knew I wanted things to be different I knew I wanted a VBAC and I looked for a different provider through I can. Like I started there with those ladies. Like, who do you recommend? And kind of felt them out a little bit. Yeah. And everyone was really pushing um, certified nurse mid- midwives. There were several across the area. There were a couple OBs that people liked as well. So I chose a midwife from that who was part of a greater practice. So she worked underneath a group of OBs. And again, super uncomplicated pregnancy. I guess I should backtrack for a second here. I will say that my my daughter was born at nine pounds, nine and a half ounces. Nice. (laughs) My first, yeah. So they did put big baby and failure to progress as the reason for the cesarean. I, she was a big baby. I still think that had I been like, you know, had some help moving around and stuff that we could have, it could have been a different outcome. So when I went to the second midwife with my second pregnancy, of course, like big baby was kind of part of the discussion, but she was always so positive about it. I'd go to an appointment and she would say, oh my gosh, I just had a VBAC last week. Mom pushed out a 10 pound baby on her hands and knees and it was fantastic. Awesome. And it was really encouraging to hear that through the whole pregnancy. And again, uncomplicated, nothing, you know, nothing to worry about. I measure, you know, completely on point as far as fundal height the entire time. And again, I get to 41 weeks Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they do a biophysical profile, um, no signs of labor whatsoever. And they do growth measurements while they're in there. Mm -hmm. And I leave the ultrasound. Mm -hmm. I go back to my appointment to see the midwife. And it was like every scare tactic in the book started pouring out of her really um, it was yeah it was it was re- it was really traumatic and of course my husband's with me at this point because I'm overdue so there's always the chance that you know Don't and we're, we're driving about an hour to yeah. each appointment mm-hmm. so at that point he's coming along just in case oh, yeah. <laughs> and 
I, it was that she would have recommended even a first time mom seek a cesarean because the guesstimate was that this baby would be 11 to 12 pounds. Yeah, this is the midwife. Yeah. What? 11 to 12 pounds was there for her size, pounds. for the baby's size. Yeah. And it was, you know, shoulder dysthesia and infant mortality, all kinds of terrible things that could happen. And there's no way that she could feel comfortable suggesting a trial of labor at this point. So in my hormonal state, I asked her to leave the room. Good for you. <laughs> and I left the office without talking to her. Um, I told my husband, I was like, I can't, I can't process this right now. We need to leave because I was just so emotional. And I go back to my trusty I can group, my supportive women, and just pour my heart out again. And, of course, they say, you know, you, you don't have to consent. Um, you know, you can continue to ask for more time. You and baby are healthy. Switch providers. That was another one that was thrown out to me. And I thought, who would take me at 41 weeks pregnant? Mm. And I was really overwhelmed. I had a lot of push from family to kind of get myself back to the office and just go with her advice and schedule a C-section. And it is interesting. My mom's a back mom. Oh, um, awesome. She had three children and then her fourth was a V-back or the fourth was a cesarean and then her fifth was a V-back and that was in 2000. Uh, so she, she had been through this process herself, but you know, it's, it's all out of, out of love and they just wanted the best for the whole scenario. And I ended up calling the office back the next day and I'm told by the receptionist that, Oh, you're already on the calendar for a C-section tomorrow. Wow. And I, you know, I never consented to that. So that's great. But I, I worked myself up to it. We wrote down everything that I wanted to happen in this case. And, and they did it. I got a clear drape. I got skin to skin in the OR. For as far as that goes, it couldn't have been better. Um, however, the OB that did that performed the cesarean, who I had never met before until the morning that I got there, as she delivered, my daughter said, yep, yep, this had been a, a very traumatizing vaginal birth. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's, that's really reassuring as you're yeah. laying on the operating table. But she was nine pounds, six ounces. So again, a big baby. Um, not that big, though. <laughs> but not that big. Yeah, but not that big. I mean, um, I've but, seen bigger babies born, that's for sure. Right? Yeah. Well, even your midwife <laughs> and, said and that. And a far cry from the 11 to 12 yeah. pounds yeah. that they had estimated yeah. during yeah. the ultrasound. Yeah. So I was frustrated with, again, with the experience, but I healed much faster this time. Um, I hadn't labored ahead of time. Um, and so overall, it, I mean, it was a better experience. And then, surprise, summer of 2017, I found myself pregnant. Was We were not expecting it at all. And again, I knew I, I had to seek out something different care-wise. And I went back to ICANN, and I've, I've been active in the group the whole time since um, I originally joined. But I asked again, you know, where are people going? What's you know, happening right now? What are the trends? There's a lot of great doulas in the group that are, you know, in all the hospitals in the area at this point. So they know kind of like who's going to be most supportive. And there had been two midwives who had worked under several different practices at this point and had started their own practice, their own private practice between the two of them. And I decided that, you know, this felt right. This is where we were going to go. 
And during my first consultation with them, I realized that they had worked for the previous practice that I had been at with my second birth. And she said, yeah, you weren't a Cinderella VBAC. <laughs> Everything didn't happen exactly at midnight like it was supposed to oh, yeah. um, by 40 weeks. And so they flipped on you. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Um, which was partially like upsetting but reassuring yeah. at the same time that, yeah. okay, like, um, and, and during my second pregnancy, I had done chiropractic care. I'd done everything under the sun, acupuncture, trying to make sure that everything was perfect for a VBAC. Mm-hmm. Um, so that made it all the more devastating when I didn't even get a trial of labor. Yeah. Um, but with my third pregnancy, again, uncomplicated, no issues whatsoever. I love the midwives. They're fantastic. I see them throughout the pregnancy. And then I get to about 34 weeks. And I'm seeing, like, some scuttlebutt on the ICANN group where, <laughs> oh, no, like, the, mid- the midwives have um, lost their supporting obstetrician, um, which means that they could no longer have rights to deliver at the hospital oh that they were delivering gosh, at. Oh, my gosh, no. And at this point, I, so I kind of know what's going on, but they haven't told me themselves yet. Mm. So I go to my 34-week <sighs> appointment, and God bless her, she's like, you know, we can't continue because we've we've got a new backing group. Mm. Um, we're at a different hospital now, but they refuse to back us for VBAC 2C. Um, they'll let us go with a VBAC, but that's it. And so mm. I had a bit of a breakdown in her office because, yeah. of course, at this time, I could have coded you ACOG's guidelines. Um, mm. I had, you know, read all the research you and I, I knew what I was doing. I was I was prepared. And I said, if this is a recommendation, if this is truly a good, you know, informed consent decision, I've, I've decided that this is okay. And ACOG backs this up for me. Why is it so hard to find a provider that practices this way? (laughs) And, you know, she just kind of sat there and commiserated with me. Like, you know, we're tired too. We're fighting this fight every day so that women in this area still have, you know, provider options. So anyway, she's able to recommend me to an obstetrician um, that they had worked under in the past that supported them. And at 36 weeks, I met my new provider. She immediately starts giving me a few statistics and I, you know, finish her sentence for her. (laughs) And she (laughs) says, yeah, this, I have no problem supporting you in this because most of the time when a woman comes into me asking for this, they know just as much as I do as far as the statistics go. Um, You know, they've done their research, they're informed they know what's going on. Of course, she said, obviously, we have like a little bit of big baby watch going on. But that was really the only thing that we had talked about. And I continued out my pregnancy without any issues. And of course, again, I get to 41 weeks with nothing, no signs of labor. Um, I like to keep babies forever, it seems. (laughs) And we get to the point where, uh, she recommends an induction based on the fact that baby could only get bigger. She says, I know you're gonna not going to want to hear this, but um, at this point, like, why not try it? Let's go in with a Foley bulb and let's see what happens. At least they um, offered a so, Foley bulb. Yeah. <laughs> she did, yes. Well, and first she did offer to strip my membranes, and we did that. And then we waited a couple days. 
And I decided that the baby was definitely staying in a couple more days because it was my oldest daughter's birthday mm-hmm. <laughs> that weekend. And I thought, you're staying in, you don't want to share your birthday. And that's okay. Yes. Um, so we made it to that point. We went in with a Foley bulb and really didn't get any change, which was a little disappointing uh, because... I was really hoping that I went in at like a loose one, that maybe that would just be all that it took and labor, you know, went on from there and we wouldn't need anything else. But sadly, no, that's not the way it happened. We went further in with Pitocin the next morning. I did have this phobia about having my water broke. Um, After they had done that very first thing with my oldest daughter, I said, absolutely not. Nobody's breaking my water. Yeah. And, you know, I was at a teaching hospital um, which was a different hospital than what we had originally planned on. And luckily, some of the very first residents that we encountered quoted VBAC 2C stats to me and said, this is a good thing. This is good to go for a trial of labor. And I thought, wow, they're teaching you well here. Yes. <laughs> um, it, at least for that one, the one student that I encountered very first, she was, she was great. She made me feel like we were at least in a really supportive environment. And the next morning, when they started my Pitocin, the doctor on rounds came in and said, why haven't you eaten breakfast? Oh, good. You could tell it kind of made the nurse, like, rear up a little bit. (laughs) Wait a second, she can't eat. You're letting this happen? Yeah. Um, And she said, yeah, get this woman something to eat. Oh, good. Let's let's get her some food. So that was great. So important. Um, But we did. We did Pitocin all day. I made it to about noon and um, let them check me. And we were at five centimeters. And I remember just like getting teary eyed. That was further than I had ever made it with my daughter. I was like, this is going to happen. And that was really like the tipping point moment for me where a lot of the fear went away of what if I can't, what if my body doesn't do this? And I switched into my body can do this. Like we are doing this. And it was really exciting at that point. And, you know, it was slow progression. I just set up camp on a birthing ball and just bounced my little heart out um, until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 2.30, and we ended up getting checked again. And I was all six, almost seven centimeters, and I had decided, like, I was ready. I was ready for an epidural. Yeah. (laughs) And so that was the next move, got that. And at that point, the nurse was like, okay, let's get a peanut ball. Um, And, you know, they never stopped working with me. And that was another thing that was just a total night and day difference from my first birth, where the cranky nurse was like, oh, you know, you don't have your monitor on. And this time they're like, that's okay. Like, we need to get you in the right position. Let's keep moving, shifting, changing to make sure that we move this baby down. And, you know, we got to the point that evening, my doctor comes back in to check on me and we were like nine centimeters and I was so excited. I finally agreed to let them break my water (laughs) and there was meconium in the water, um, Mm. but nobody acted alarmed. Nobody panicked, which was really reassuring to me. Meconium can be common. It's common. Yeah. And especially in a late-term baby. Yeah. Um, You know, we were... We were at 41 weeks, and so that didn't surprise me at Yeah. And, you know, it, it ended up with, like, one extra nurse in the delivery room just, right. to, you know, for extra baby's precaution. sake. yep. Yeah, and that was fine. But I nobody ever acted panicked, and there was a total sense of calm the entire time. Right. And that was so – and, then, you know, it could have just been the perfect combination of people on staff. 
but I really appreciated that through that process. And we pushed for about 20 minutes once I got complete, which didn't take much long after they broke That's my water. I mean, it was not long at all. Yeah. Yeah. I was on cloud nine. They put him up on my chest so fast that, and this was a surprise baby. We had no idea the gender. Oh, that's so <laughs> uh, Put him up on my chest and covered him with a blanket so quickly that neither my husband or I had any idea what the gender. And um, I remember the doctor's like, dad, dad, what is it? What is it? And he's like, I have no idea. I think he was still a little bit in awe. <laughs> so we had like gone through this whole process. And it it really happened. (laughs) And uh, we had our son, which was exciting. It's it's a running joke in our family. I have four sisters and the oldest of five girls that we don't have boys. (laughs) So it was it was fun to, you know, say, oh, we have we have a boy. And I remember as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, my gosh, son, like we did it. And Marshall, we named him Marshall and Marshall, we did it. We showed those doctors like we can do this. Yes. And the best part, he was eight pounds, two ounces. So bigger so he baby, was my yeah. Smallest baby, yeah. yeah you know, and the bigger, so, but yeah, I, not not. Yeah, you don't have big babies, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just I I credited a lot of things to just like how smoothly everything went. Yeah, um, my midwives were so low stress the whole pregnancy. They just really trusted me and what decisions I would make on things and even and never wanted to do anything that was unnecessary. Yeah. Um, so like I'm RH negative. And she said, oh, girl, go get your husband's blood tested. We're not making you get Rogam if you don't need to. Yay, that is <laughs> and, so you know, things that providers before had never even mentioned to me yeah. Um, yeah. as being options. And um, I remember as soon as he was born, do- my doctor looks up and she's like, okay, when are we going to do it again? <laughs> um, she's like, you know, we kind of had to force him out of there, but we mm-hmm. did it and you did it. And it was great. I went, I remember going to my follow-up appointment and as my husband dropped me off at the door, um, it was like a two week postpartum visit. He was like, you need to make sure to give her a hug for me. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. I love um, how birth changes dads in yeah, a lot of ways too. You, you know, know, I, yeah, you guys had talked about that in a previous episode and I remember nodding in my car as I listened. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. Yes. yes. Because he, I feel like he's been proud of this story, you know, like, you know, she knew what she wanted because you get a lot of raised eyebrows um, yep. whenever you tell people that this is what you're doing and that, no, no, I didn't schedule another cesarean. Um, this is the choice that we've made. And he was always so supportive the entire time. You know, if this is what you want and this is what you need, then this is what we're going to do, which was great. And he's, you know, explained that to other dads too. As he's talked about it, that, yeah, it's possible. It's what she wanted. We found a great doctor and it happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is so awesome. I am proud of you. Like you, you went through a lot and there's a lot of people trying to throw a wrench in some things for you, but I'm, I'm grateful that you had that experience. <laughs> yeah. It's the changing late in the game is really scary. Uh, oh yeah. It's totally scary. After, after what happened with my second pregnancy, I knew I couldn't not do it. Yeah. Um, yep. Like, yep. There, there was no other option at that point. Like, we're doing this. We're switching. We're finding somebody. I don't care yeah. if I have to switch three more times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I actually I changed doing. as well. And, you know, I, I do think that the provider that I was with would have supported me. But the, the place that I would have been, I think, would have restricted 
him. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I'm so grateful for the the choice that I made and, and changing. And it, it is, it's scary and it's hard and it's an emotional thing when you're like, okay, whoa, we're shifting paths and changing providers now. But, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for me and for you, like it, it was just the best thing. And sometimes it is and it can be scary. But if we know that we're doing the right thing and we're following our intuition, then we have to do that and go with it and hope for the best. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah. Ladies, switch providers as many times as you need to. My second birth, I switched providers three times. Well, well, I left my cesarean provider and went to a hospital midwife and then they didn't quite feel right. And then I switched to a home birth midwife. And then my fourth, I was going to go, I, I was starting out with my home birth midwife again, but then something made me feel like maybe I need to go to the hospital. So I switched to a hospital and then it still didn't feel right. And then our insurance changed and, and didn't cover that hospital anymore. So I switched back to home birth. Like it's, it's a hard thing to do, but woman of strength, listen to me right now. Your intuition is your most powerful birthing tool. And if it's telling you something's not quite right about your provider, you need to listen to it. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to your family and you owe it to your unborn baby to listen to that mama heart. And it will never, ever lead you wrong. But before I get on a soapbox about intuition, (laughs) I want to share five things that most people just don't know about VBAC after two C-sections. And you can go to our blog right now and find this fully written out and all the sources cited, thevbaclink.com slash blog. So the first thing you probably didn't know is your chance of having a successful VBAC after two C-sections are similar to those of having a VBAC after just one cesarean. Um, in fact, in ACOG's bulletin about VBAC, which is bulletin number 184, they referenced two large studies. And these studies had sample size groups that were large enough to like account for any small variances that might come with different um, population groups. So it's significant for ACOG to recognize studies like this as, as credible. And it's pretty, actually pretty awesome. So the results of this do two studies you can find in that bulletin and we're going to link it on our blog concluded that the success rate varied by two percent or less which means like your chance of having a successful VBAC after one c-section are less than two percent different like the the results of success are less than two percent different than those of having a successful VBAC after so just one. one uh yeah after two c-sections so two to yeah. one like the the variance in like the chance of success is so small it's almost insignificant and the, um, the second thing that we just talked about is ACOG recommends VBAC after two C-sections is a safe option. And I'm actually going to read a quote directly from their practice bulletin 184. It says, it is reasonable to consider women with two previous low transverse cesarean deliveries to be candidates for TOLAC, which is trial of labor after cesarean, and to counsel them based on the combination of other factors that affect their probability of achieving a successful VBAC. And the third thing you probably don't know about VBAC after two C-sections is that choosing a repeat C-section does not eliminate your chance of uterine rupture, 
We only often talk about uterine rupture during TOLAC, which is trial of labor, like I said, after cesarean. And we mistakenly think that by choosing an elective repeat C-section, you eliminate any chance of rupture. But that's just not true. It's the fact that you had a C-section which puts you at risk for a rupture, not an attempt of having a vaginal birth after that C-section. Uh, let's see. Number four, there are things that you can do to minimize your risk of uterine rupture. And we list all of those things on our blog. And I'm just going to just kind of encompass it all into like, let things happen naturally. Try not to interfere. Avoid a provider that it wants to do ingress aggressive interventions, like, like p starting off Pitocin at double the dose and raising it at do double the time or whatever. You know, um, uh, Miranda's provider here was nice. Like she started out with this uh, gentle induction with a folly bulb and it, and it, and it was good. Th that was a non-aggressive intervention, right? Yep. So, um, so those things avoid the epidural if you possibly can. And if you can't, that's totally fine. Go as long as possible without getting it. If, if that's, if that is a reasonable option for you and honor your intuition. We already talked about that. Honor your intuition. I'm not going to get on a soapbox. All right. Number five. Um, number five. The fifth thing you did not know about VBAC after two C-sections is the risk for rupture is still incredibly low and maybe even the same for as a VBAC after just one C-section. So the hard thing about VBAC after two C-section research is that there's almost no studies that have controls for Pitocin or other drug use. And that could be a significant factor in sway the results big time. So while there's still a little bit of debate, uterine rupture rates may be slightly higher in the VBAC after two C-section group when Pitocin or multiple induction agents are used. But nearly all VBAC two C-section studies analyzed aggressively used Pitocin for 50% uh, or more, or uh, almost all of them, I'm so sorry, noted aggressive use of Pitocin for half of the participants in that study or more. So what that means is doctors might be trying to aggressively up your dose of Pitocin so that it stresses out your baby so that you have to have a repeat C-section. So anyways, the average um, VBAC after two C-section rupture rate is less than one and a half percent, which is still a reasonable option um, as defined by ACOG. Um, and obviously, depending on the study, the highest one that we found is 1.4%. Um, Actually, there's one study that has 0% rupture or zero rupture rate of there's over I think 15,000 people. Wow. There's a zero rupture. Anyways, but links to all of that are in our post, theviewbacklink.com slash blog. It is going to be the first one up there today. So go there and click on it. And man, guys, the, the thing about us women is we have this incredible ability to trust ourselves and trust our bodies and uh, and honor our intuition when we uh, when we free up the outside influences so do that and and if after all your research and study and learning drives you to schedule another repeat c-section that is okay that is an okay option what matters most to to us is that you made a decision based on education and your intuition and not something out of fear or pressure from your providers. So as long as you do those things, then you will be empowered. And we just 
love you guys so much. <laughs> Listening to others' stories was a big part of building my confidence this last yep. time. And so I, I, you guys weren't around yet, but I would go to the podcast app and to search VBAC and VBAC to see mm-hmm. and listen to anything and everything that I could find with positive stories. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as it happened, I thought, I have to tell the world. Yes. <laughs> and we're so glad that you did. Yes. We are so glad that you shared your story with us today. <laughs> Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the VBAClink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.